You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, why are Ontario and Quebec still reporting hundreds of new COVID-19 cases every day? Testing rates in both provinces are higher than here in B.C. So why are we seeing such a big difference in the numbers? Also on the podcast, there is another ongoing health crisis amid the pandemic, opioids. We learned on Thursday, May had the most deaths from illicit drugs of any month since they started tracking them. And And on a much lighter note, some welcome news for the restaurant industry in B.C. The province has unveiled less restrictive guidelines for reopening. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Well, you've likely heard about the commercial rent assistance program put in place to help businesses through the COVID-19 pandemic. Some business owners, though, are speaking out and raising some concerns about the program. The government has to allow for planning. You can't expect these small businesses that they've asked to close for three months to live on a 30-day notice. That was Dunbar Theatre owner Ken Charco. He was speaking previously on CKNW. Some small business owners worried because the rental assistance and eviction protections are set to expire at the end of the month, and there is concern as to what happens next. So what's happening on a federal level? Let's bring in Federal Minister of Small Business, Mary Ng, joining us to talk about what could be happening next. Minister, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, hi there, Simi. How are you? Really great to talk to you this morning. Yeah, thanks for joining the program. A lot of uh, people wondering, business owners, landlords wondering, do you know, first off, how many uh, commercial rent, uh, commercial businesses have applied and are trying to get or getting the assistance? Well, we know that it is helping thousands of small businesses across the country and the applications are ongoing. Some of the larger uh, landlords are very much in the process of putting their applications through because they have many, many tenants. They're doing it uh, as a bulk, as we understand. So the program is making its way through. And I and I, I did hear from uh, your earlier caller who uh, was on, you know, who was on the program. And I just want to assure Canadian businesses, I mean, nothing is more important to us than helping them weather through this very, very difficult period. And certainly in as they are restarting their businesses, we know how important it is that they get the support they need to um, to not only deal with uh, the effects of COVID-19, but certainly as they are restarting their businesses. We're hearing from several business owners saying that because it's been put to the landlords to apply and the landlords have to take the 25% cut in rent, a lot of landlords aren't doing it and simply saying, well, I don't have to. Uh, do you think that, that, that it was a mistake or to, to give the landlords the power to do that? Was that really the best way to go about it? Well, rent is an area of provincial responsibility, but we all agreed that helping small businesses was all of our responsibilities. So the federal government stepped up, worked with the provinces and territories, and and we have a program that really is beneficial for both the landlords as well as for the small business owner. We really do want to see the landlords take this up. I'm very pleased to see that uh, British Columbia, along with some other provinces, have implemented complementary measures to make this program successful. Uh, that is the uh, the ban, I guess, on, on commercial evictions uh, for that period of time, certainly for those small businesses that are eligible for this assistance. And I would say to landlords across the country, and uh, Canadians have been asked to do something very extraordinary, and there has been 
tremendous hardships as a result of COVID-19. And we have taken a, a, a Team Canada approach. We have flattened the curve. We, of course, don't want to see that progress. Um, we, we, want, we don't want to see it lose any of that progress that has been gained. And small businesses have absolutely been impacted. So I'm asking and appealing to landlords across the country that, uh, that this is really important to the restart of the economy. It's really important, uh, I think, to them, but also to the small businesses. And if businesses are hardest hit, it will have an impact on the landlords as well because um, it's going to cost them more than that 25% if they no longer have a tenant. And I think it's in all of our interests to help these small businesses. But I'm hearing from small business owners who are saying not only are the landlords in some cases reluctant, they're also finding the paperwork extremely confusing and complex and even even hard to muddle through to make the application. We have uh, right through the beginning of uh, COVID-19 wanted to ensure that uh, that businesses and those uh, and Canadians who are utilizing our programs to make it as easy as possible so that they can indeed um, take, you know, so that they can get the benefit and the support. And, um, and you know, again, what I would say to landlords is it's, it's, uh, it's really easy to, um, you know, to get in there and to do the application and to pass on those savings to your small businesses. They really do need your help. We really are depending on everyone to pull together so that we can help with the restart of the economy. And I, for the small businesses, I would also say, we have also introduced the Canada Emergency Business Account. We've extended the wage subsidy support, which I know is really important to so many businesses as they restart, because people is their best asset. So extending that until the end of, October, uh, sorry, the end of August is, um, is, is going to be helping many businesses. But I know some of the businesses have also accessed the small business loan in an effort to manage those uh, operating costs and those expenses. And, and, uh, and that continues to be there for our businesses. So a range of supports because we really do want to help businesses get through this period. All right, uh, Minister, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining the program. Thank you so much, Simi, and all the very best. All right, that is Mary Ang, Federal Minister of Small Business. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, every day, I think a lot of people wait for that three o'clock news conference or the release of the numbers, hoping that they will stay low in this province as we look forward to phase three and the reopening on Monday. And just 14 new cases announced in BC yesterday. A very different story, though, if we go across the country. Ontario had more than 200, Quebec 144 cases. So why such the wild variation? Is it just population or is something else going on? Well, right now we are joined by contact tracing and testing expert Colin Furness with the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Why do you think we're still seeing such high numbers in Ontario and Quebec when it comes to COVID-19 cases? Well, both provinces really got hit hard. And those numbers look large. If you're in BC right now, those numbers look maybe even a bit scary. Um, being right in the middle of it, I would say it looks like good news to us because it actually represents a pretty dramatic decrease over the last little while. Um, when you look at the numbers day-to-day anywhere, they can go really up and really down, and it, it can depend on a few things. It can depend on backlogs with testing. 
Uh, we notice cases tend to go down on weekends, and that's not because COVID takes days off, but, but lab technicians do. So we, we see that a little bit. We also have to understand that, you know, the idea of the reproductive number or how many additional cases does every new case cause, it's quite variable. Um, most or many new cases don't result in any additional cases. In fact, COVID seems to have arrived in New York several times and then petered out. And then you get a super spreading event. And we're all very aware of those because they really make headlines where one person manages to infect dozens because of unfortunate circumstances. So it's, it's, it's only in the big picture, only in the aggregate of a lot of people over a long time that those lines look smooth of new cases going up and down. For, for the day-to-day experience, it really is variable that way. Uh, you mentioned the super spreader uh, experience, and we've had one uh, recently in BC as well. It was a gathering of, I think, 30 people, and then 15 people tested positive for the virus. Uh, how do you kind of break those numbers down, though? Because what we don't know is if it was one person that infected 14 others, or if five people came to the gathering and infected three others each. How do you, or, or can we even, when we have scenarios like that, break down how exactly it's being spread? Sometimes you can, um, and often you can't. When we do contact tracing, what we do is we sit down and try and answer two questions. Where did you get it from? Where were you that you got exposed? And given that that's happened, and now that you're infected, who have you maybe passed that on to? And sometimes you can construct a pretty clear narrative. And the fewer cases there are, the better. Once it really gets community spread everywhere, then it becomes really hard to answer. So I think in BC right now, probably that question could be answered. I've heard about this case. I don't know the the specific details of it. But we we have to imagine that community spread, that is undetected cases in BC right now, it's not zero, but it is quite low. And again, most cases or many cases will peter out um, and they won't cause these big super spreading events. But there's, there's just a lot of uncertainty. And I think you're right. We tend to compare the provinces and with the numbers, but it's such a different scenario and different different things happening for, in these different cases. Uh, in Ontario, they are moving ahead, entering phase two, I think it is. Uh, how important will it be then to continue contact tracing and to keep tabs on this virus as best we can? It becomes really important. Um, First of all, it's it's very, very important, significant that Ontario, like Quebec, decided to adopt a regional model for managing it now. So different regions will open at different times depending on their local circumstances. And I think that's I think that's actually a lot better. The way forward, the way to be successful is to have enough boots on the ground, enough readiness so that when one new case presents, you're able to come down on it hard with extensive contact tracing and testing. And that keeps small outbreaks local. And that's really success. We're going to keep on seeing COVID. We're going to keep on seeing it until we have a vaccine. But we can, I think in many cases, manage to keep it very, very local and very, very small, but only with contact tracing and testing. And different too, I would imagine, if we're dealing with outbreaks in long-term care facilities, which unfortunately we've seen in Ontario, Quebec, and in, in, in provinces, it's been here in BC as well. That is obviously a much different scenario as far as who's exposed and who could potentially get the virus compared to, say, going into phase two and a swimming pool is reopened. Certainly. I mean, long-term care homes are a bit of a perfect storm for COVID. Um, we know what COVID 
And, you know, it likes people who are, are, are very old and, and have multiple health conditions and are vulnerable. COVID also likes the kinds of people who work in high-risk jobs in long-term care homes. Um, so those are people who are essential workers with little safety training, um, with very little um, uh, very little social, cultural, and, and human capital to, to be able to work from home or to be able to make alternate arrangements. So it's, it's really very, very, very difficult, no question. That is obviously a very different story from imagining what is going on in a typical neighborhood. You know, if you go down to the corner store, is there COVID there or not? I, I will say generally there probably isn't, but complacency is also a source of risk here. And that's something to consider as well. And complacency as well with people talking, it might seem like we're jumping ahead, but people are already bracing or talking about this potential second wave. Do you think that's inevitable? It is, I think, um, becoming increasingly clear that COVID is behaving the way a respiratory virus behaves. There's good news there and there's bad news there. The good news is the summer is protective. And I think one main reason that cases in Ontario and Quebec have dropped is not because of our interventions, which have been not really well thought out or executed, but the weather. Um, There's a really good reason why flu and colds don't circulate in the summer, and it has to do with heat and humidity and the fact that people go outdoors a fair bit. So that's going to help us a lot. However, um, all of our jubilation and relief and loosening of restrictions is going to mean that by the time the weather starts to turn colder again, and I would say October is when we're going to start to notice Um, that COVID is, I think, likely going to roar back, and it's going to roar back in a pretty significant way. That's bad news. The good news, on top of that bad news, is we already know what it's like to lock down, and we could actually really imagine a very brief lockdown with everything that we've learned that would actually let us really um, hold it in check. In fact, it would perhaps let Ontario and Quebec have an outcome that looks a lot more like BC's was uh, over the course of the last few months. All right, Colin, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Colin Furness is an associate professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information and the Dalalana School of Public Health. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you may have seen or heard in the news, protesters in Seattle occupying several blocks outside of the Seattle Police Department's East Precinct. That started on Monday. They're calling it the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ, as some are referring to it. We heard also from Seattle's police chief, Carmen Best, saying she's upset and that leaving the precinct was not her decision. I am uh, very angry about the situation that we have. And at this point, we just want to make Make sure that it gets resolved. Uh, we did not, for clarification, abandon the precinct, um, but we did have to um, remove some personnel for a short period of time, and then it became unsafe. You've seen the pictures and the photos of what's going on uh, for us to safely put our officers back in there. Let's bring in Hannah Scott, a reporter with Cairo TV in Seattle. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Uh, what's the situation now? Uh, The situation remains as it has for the last several days. Uh, Yesterday, after uh, we heard from Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best, and we also heard from the mayor, we did see some, uh, just a handful of officers go back up to the East Precinct. Actually, Chief Best was out there yesterday morning. They went inside to look, and they, uh, there's at any point in the day, anywhere from dozens to hundreds of people who are out in this Chaz area, this autonomous zone, and many of them kind of came up to the police and who were there and tried to 
kind of talk, uh, get into it with them verbally, if I guess is a good way to describe it, and tell them they didn't want them there. But the police went in and looked around. There was a little bit of dam- damage on the outside. And they're trying to open a dialogue with those who have essentially occupied these several blocks to uh, see how they can get them, the police back in there uh, normally and safely so that it doesn't get to the escalation like we've seen for more than 12 days of protests when we had tear gas and flashbang grenades and it really looked like a war zone as somebody who was up there covering it. It was it was really a little out of control. So they're trying to figure out how they can do that peacefully. And the demonstrations uh, calling for change, uh, are they are they joining in the gem- the demonstrations as far as uh, the death of George Floyd and the, and how that prompted or is it is there more going on as far as what the demonstrators are calling for there? There's a lot of different things going on here. So, and, and the situation where it's, it is on Capitol Hill is really kind of co-opting the very larger message that we're seeing uh, around the world and across the U.S., of course, after George Floyd's death. We have our local Black Lives Matter movement who is doing a statewide march here in Washington State today. They have very clear uh, demands that they want. They want uh, to, to defund our police department to a certain degree and invest in in communities of color uh, who have long felt underfunded and uh, deal with the education gap, closing the opportunity gap, things like that. The folks up on Capitol Hill are something I tend to describe as uh, professional protesters. It's always been that kind of a place where they jump onto issues. So there's certainly those in the black community who are up there taking their time to kind of send that same message that you get from the overall Black Lives Matter movement. But there are also those who are fighting for rights for homeless people, for a variety of other things. So it's very kind of fractured, and the message, unfortunately, tends to get lost from the overall big-picture thing that we're seeing around the world and across the U.S. Uh, The president uh, has weighed in on this uh, on Twitter, calling uh, the protesters domestic terrorists. He's calling on the governor to take back the city. I can't imagine that's going over well with um, the protesters. No, certainly not. And in fact, we saw uh, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin came out yesterday and called a press conference really specifically to address some of the things that President Donald Trump was saying on Twitter and to make clear to everyone here in Seattle that there would be no invasion of Seattle by the by the military. Uh, She said it was illegal, unconstitutional and unwelcome in order to for that to happen. The city would have to ask for it. And it's made clear already that it would not do so. So I think there's a lot of misinformation, especially going around on social media. We had reports that some of these protesters were armed and extorting businesses for protection money. That was absolutely false information that unfortunately got reported anecdotally by someone in the police department. So there's just a lot of misinformation, and and it's unfortunate. Uh, Have they said what, or the protesters, and I know that it's it's different groups and, and different demands and different reasons for being there, but is there any idea what needs to be done, or, or are they saying what they would like to put an end to this? Some uh, some people don't want to end it at all. They want to permanently occupy that area, which obviously can't be allowed to happen. And then you have others who want to turn that specific building, the Seattle Police Department East Precinct, that they've now covered up and call it the Seattle People's Police or Seattle People's Department. They want that turned into a community center. Uh, Others want the city to just allow that area to take care of itself, and it's that's not going to be allowed to happen. Others want the Seattle Police Department defunded by 50%. The mayor made clear also yesterday that that's not going to happen. So at a certain point, and it was a good sign to see the police return there yesterday to at least try to open a dialogue, because you cannot, there are people who who live there. There are response times for our police and fire departments to go, if there's an emergency or a violent crime of some sort, have tripled because of the occupation going on there now. All right, Uh, Hannah, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today.
My pleasure, Jill. Thank you. All right. Hannah Scott is a reporter with Cairo TV in Seattle, uh, updating us on what is happening in that city. Lots happening just south of the border. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the numbers released from the BC Coroner's Service shows that May, in one single month, May had the most overdose deaths recorded, 170 people dying in this province from illicit drug overdose. So why are we seeing this uptick in overdose deaths and what can be done about it? We're joined now by Garth Mullins. He is the host of the Vancouver-based podcast, Crackdown, and it's about drug policy and the experiences of people who use drugs. Garth is on the line with us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, What was your response when you saw and heard the numbers and where we're at with overdose deaths in BC? Um, Well, you know, I was kind of bracing for this a little bit. Like, we've just been seeing things uh, be quite bad over the last couple of months. Um, I didn't know that we were going to break this record and have this very grim milestone of the worst month ever in in the whole history of everything here in BC. Um, But that's what happened. Uh, and what are you hearing from people as far as uh, there's there are a lot of factors that people are are, are saying are, are are the reasons for this, whether it's people using more alone because uh, people are isolating because of the pandemic or it's about the supply. What are you hearing or what do you think are the factors that are causing this? Well, I think it's a, a combination of things. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely the, the pandemic is causing disruptions to services people would usually use. And social distancing is mean people are using alone a little bit. Um, but honestly, there was no policy changes to really arrest the the acceleration and, and the kind of the deaths from the overdose crisis. So we were bound to have more peaks. And if on the current policy trajectory, we may have valleys, but we're just going to have more more crises, more waves. And what about the drug supply itself? Because there has been some talk about the closure of the border and that that's changed the concentration or changed what's, what people are actually using. Are you, is that what you're hearing or seeing as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and myself, I'm seeing it. Uh, lots of the people who work on the podcast and live in the neighborhood and stuff are seeing it. And um, the coroner is seeing it. The coroner noticed a, you know, a significant increase in uh, extreme fentanyl concentrations. And this happens when there's a, a vacuum created in the drug market. And that vacuum is often created by the police. You know, if they go um, rush around and arrest and, and pinch down the supply on, on traditional heroin or whatever, um, then a vacuum forms and, and something stronger rushes in. Or if the borders are closed or if there's uh, supply disruptions for other reasons, that then we've seen this happen a lot. In fact, that's how heroin got here to begin with, I think. Or sorry, how fentanyl got here to begin with is sort of the the droughts and the enforcement created vacuums in the regular market. Uh, how is it getting here then? Or, or do you know how this extreme fentanyl is getting into the system when we do have the borders shut down and the supply uh, at, at one point seemed to be cut off completely? Well, I never, I never experienced that. I never saw the supply of drugs get cut off uh, completely, but people can also make things locally, you know? So, uh, and also it's, you can close the border, but people can still get things through. And, and of course, the, the iron law, law of prohibition is that uh, drugs get stronger and smaller. So if you think about prohibition of alcohol, everyone drank beer, then alcohol became illegal, and then it was moonshine because they had to you know, sneak it around to get, a, get away from the cops easier, so a higher concentration, higher volume thing. Well, this happens with drugs. Fentanyl is higher concentration, lower volume. 
and uh, so it can go through the post. You know, uh, it's it's much easier to for people to smuggle through. Uh, so it's enforcement actually has the opposite effect of what they think it does. Uh, with so many people focused on the, the COVID nineteen pandemic and the, and the shift going, and uh, I know Andy Watson with the coroner service said yesterday we were actually seeing a decline in the number of overdose deaths before COVID nineteen started. Uh, so with that focus, and clearly that focus is going to continue for some time, what do you think needs to be done then to properly address what's happening when it comes to overdoses? Well, I I, I think basically to stop the deaths, you have to accept people right now are. Are wired to drugs, you know, like I used heroin for most of my life. It's very difficult to stop. It's not just a matter of willpower. So for for people to be able to stay alive, to go get themselves treatment or whatever, eventually, um, I just think you should get a prescription version of what you do. So in this case, it would be heroin. You know, most people who are taking fentanyl right now would take a prescription of heroin. Uh, that would that would sort of stop the illegal market. It would also give people a lot of stability. And this has happened in other countries. Uh, I used to live in the UK, and they used to do that a long time ago. Um, you know, it's done in Switzerland. There's good results. There's lots of proof. There have been studies right here in Vancouver that show how effective it can be. So, you know, I think it's time to actually just do that. Uh, and do you get the sense, I mean, there have been pilot projects and it's been tried out. Do you get the sense that, that, that it's even possible right now or, or that there would be the attention during the pandemic to do that? Oh, it's, it's absolutely possible. You don't have to invent anything new. All that stuff already exists. We already know everything. It's just whether the politicians can be bothered to do it or not. And right now, they, they can't be. Even so, in May, more people died of overdose than all the people who've died of COVID in BC so far. So um, the problem is, for the politicians, the wrong kind of people are dying of overdose. So they're not, we're not wealthy, we're not, uh, we don't tend to vote in a big block or something like that. Um, we don't have a lot of economic or political power, uh, people who use drugs. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult. That, that's the barrier, is just the political will. There's no, there's nothing um, particularly novel or expensive or anything like that about prescription heroin. All right. Uh, just before I let you go, Garth, I wanted to ask you as well, kind of shifting gears here, but I, when I saw you were coming on the program today, I immediately thought to the protests that are happening right now and your history in BC with protesting uh, going back to the 90s. So I'm just curious if you've been paying attention or what your thoughts are seeing what's happening in the police response and the worldwide response to what we're seeing as far as protests. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm happy to see it happen. I think it's terrific that People are rethinking about the role of police in society and rethinking about the amount of funding we spend on police. It's gone up and up and up, you know, since I was um, uh, more active in, in protests that you were talking about. It's increased, you know, since the Olympics, maybe by 50 percent, the, the budget of the Vancouver police. We've got to think about do the Vancouver police really need an armored personnel carrier, acoustic weapons and battle hardened police cruisers? I mean, crime in society is going down. The statistics show this. It's been a trend for decades, yet police budgets are going up and up and up. Um, and BC has the most uh, deaths in custody of anywhere in Canada. 
So we got to start to ask ourselves, what is going on? We've got to do this a better way. So yeah, I say defund the VPD. What does that mean, though, to defund certain areas of it? I'm just thinking because I remember the pepper spraying at the Apex Summit, and I know you were there. Now we're seeing tear gas used in cases. It's just very similar to what we've seen back in the 90s. So what do you think it would look like? What would a defunding look like? Well, I think you start by thinking of all all of the funding that's gone up since, uh, say, the Olympics, uh, you know, just that I was talking about. That that money could be much better spent on, um, you know, social issues. And I know that sounds vague, but the police themselves will tell you that they're winding up being social workers and mental health caseworkers, and they don't want to be. So, I mean, the police themselves are calling for somebody else to be doing those jobs. We just have to take the money in society and apportion it. And we should be spending money on helping people, not buying tanks for police. All right, Garth, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining the show today. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Garth, Take care. You too. Garth Mullins, he is the host of the uh, uh, podcast Crackdown. It's a Vancouver-based podcast about drugs and drug policy. Well, we learned yesterday from the BC Coroner's Service, May had the most deaths from illicit drug overdoses than any month since we car- started keeping those statistics. And the BC Coroner's Service is saying that extreme fentanyl is to blame in many of those cases. So what has caused this spike in overdose deaths? Let's bring in Donald McPherson the executive director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. Uh, Don, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, no problems, Amy. Uh, good to hear you. Uh, what do you think it, is the connection? We're talking about the report that was released from the coroner's office yesterday and this extreme fentanyl concentration that has caused a lot of these deaths. But what is the connection you see or can we make between the COVID-19 pandemic and this spike in deaths? Um, I think the the connection is uh, you're dealing with an already fairly pre-existing toxic drug market, and the closure of the uh, the borders uh, in our country has disrupted the global supply chain uh, temporarily, at least. And uh, you're seeing uh, basically a disrupted market that uh, is of uh, more dangerous uh, quality of drugs. Uh, different mixes of drugs. Uh, the drug drugs are still flowing, but they're uh, the uh, precursors and uh, the way they've been uh, mixed has obviously been disrupted. And also, COVID has also pushed people back into uh, you know lack, less social uh, activity, uh, more isolation, more using alone. Um, less connectivity with people in terms of uh, looking out for each other. So with a, a perfect storm of uh, both drug market dynamics and the social uh, dynamics that are putting people more at risk. And, and I think one of the findings, and we've seen this in previous months as well, is the deaths are not occurring at consumption sites for people who are still able to access uh, sites, the supervised sites. So that would point to that people are are doing the drugs at home or doing them, like you said, in isolation and being in that higher danger. Yes, and the coroner has been very clear on that over the last several years of the public health emergency. Remember, we're in year five of the public health emergency. Um, she's been very clear that the um, the majority of people uh, dying uh, are using their substances alone. Um, and uh, she's also been very clear that no one has died in a supervised setting. So the the, the tragedy of this 
uh, unfolding uh, disaster is that no no one has to die of an overdose. And the, and the supervised consumption services and overdose prevention services, they demonstrate that. Uh, you do not have to die if you have someone with you and someone who can do CPR or have naloxone. Um, so it's an absolute tragedy. And the stigma on this issue, a stigma of addiction and substance use, keeps people uh, in the shadows uh, at their own peril. Uh, you talked about the supply and that being changed as well because of the pandemic. And there have been some reports or theories that producers of these drugs have gone to other places to get to get those supplies. And that's where this extreme fentanyl or these dangerous supplies are being sourced. So how do you combat that or how do you stop that? Um, you, you can't stop that. Uh, and this is another part of the the, the tragic situation is that we keep pretending that we are able to uh, make progress without uh, acknowledging the elephant in the room, which is a, a transnational, sophisticated uh, criminal organizations that supply drugs. And yes, they've been disrupted, but they're still supplying drugs. They're different drugs and they're more toxic drugs. But you see the supply chains uh, have, have adopted to the situation. So as long as we are going to not deal with this criminal market uh, in our country, we're going to not have the impact that we want to have, no matter what we do. And that's that's been said for many, many years and has not been acted upon. What would you like to see happen then? Because there is this focus now on the COVID-19 pandemic. It seems to have taken uh, what focus there was on, on overdoses in this province and other parts of the country as well. What do you think needs to happen at this point? Well, I think the the uh, safe supply initiative that the, uh, the province uh, of BC and has, has supported I think that needs to be more robustly implemented and it needs to be implemented across the country. Uh, these are small pilot projects. You're talking about 1,500, 1,700 people in BC when there are many thousands of people at risk of overdose. And many, many of those people will not find a physician that will prescribe. Uh, it needs to be embraced by uh, all of uh, the institutions, uh, colleges of physicians, pharmacists, uh, and it, it, it's a work in progress, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great innovation, but it's only a small piece. And again, it's not going to solve the toxic drug supply that keeps flooding into our country. Um, so one of the things our organization would like to see is for politicians to actually face that fact and say, we need to change our drug policy. We need to decriminalize drugs. We need to create a legal regulatory model for these substances and try and get rid of the toxic drug market uh, once and for all. And medical health officers across the country who are quite revered uh, for their pandemic uh, uh, information and directions are calling for this. They're calling for decriminalization. They're calling for a legal regulated supply of drugs for people. People don't need to die because they have an addiction. Um, so it, it's, it's an unfolding tragedy that we refuse to face the, the largest uh, fundamental driver of this uh, current overdose epidemic, which is the toxic market. All right. And everything else, everything we do is around the edges. All right, Don, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time today. Okay, thank you. Don McPherson, Executive Director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. 
This is Mornings with Simi. As you've likely heard, what's happening in Ottawa, opposition parties blocking a government attempt to speed up the process of voting on an adjustment to the Canada Emergency Response benefit to the Conservatives, the Bloc, the NDP and the Greens, all denying unanimous consent to the motion, which would was asking the House of Commons to debate and vote on the bill under the accelerated time frame. Well, let's bring in David Aiken. He is the Global News Chief Political Correspondent to, to talk about what's happening in Ottawa. David, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. And even if you're reading that intro, here I am, like the chief political correspondent, and, and my head's a little spinning at all the procedural going back and forth here. It, yeah. it is a little nuts. But just to sort of unpack it a bit, since March the 16th, we've sort of been in pandemic mode so far as our parliamentary proceedings go. And the bottom line of that pandemic mode is this, that the House of Commons is not running according to its usual schedule or its usual rules. So if you want to pass legislation, it's got to be, and of course it's a minority government, uh, you need some cooperation. And so what happened this week is the government, the Trudeau government, wanted to fine-tune, uh, wanted to produce some legislation which was going to fine-tune a few things and provide a, a new benefit for those who'd filed for a disability tax credit. Now to do that, it, it wanted to do that in one afternoon. Now, normally it takes you know weeks to pass a bill. You want to debate it. You want to hear from witnesses. You want to see what's you know see if we can approve it. Um, normally it takes weeks. And, and the liberals said, Let, let's get this done in an afternoon. But to do that, that requires the unanimous consent of all the parties. And for very different reasons, but in my judgment, very legitimate reasons, the three official parties said, no, you can't have that unanimous consent. I'll tell you what this bill does. It does a few things. First of all, it provides for jail time and fines if you are found to have fraudulently obtained those Canada emergency response benefits. So that's the $2,000 a month serve. So so the the government wanted to put in some fines and jail time. Number two, it was going to provide a one-time $600 payment to those who, on their tax return last year, filed for the disability tax credit. So a one-time $600 payment to those filing for a disability tax credit. Uh, would also expand the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy to cover more seasonal workers, do some other housekeeping. So that's what the bill, it's called C-17, would do. But as I say, all three parties said, you're not getting this fast-track stuff until you do some dealing. Among the dealing that wanted to be done was the New Democrats. Jagmeet Singh's New Democrats said, we support giving money to people living with disabilities. But the wording of the bill, you might have heard me harp on this, it was only going to those who filed for the disability tax credit. And according to the NDP, 60% of Canadians who are living with disabilities, A, didn't file a tax return, or B, didn't make enough money that they needed to file a disability tax credit. So 60% of Canadians with disabilities were not going to get this one-time payment. And in any event, says the NDP, this one-time payment of 600 bucks is peanuts, they wanted some more support. So they were not going to uh, deal with that. Conservatives forever have been saying, enough with these special rules. Uh, it, you know, Everybody else is going back to work. There's ways we can meet safely as a House of Commons. Let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming. The conservatives think uh, they can do that. Uh, the PM is resisting. Uh, and the Bloc Québécois, the, the uh, pillars of fiscal responsibility, they say we're long overdue for a fiscal and economic update, uh, and they want to see more transfers to the provinces for health. So until they get uh, something on that, they are not going to support the government when it wants to fast track 
this legislation. I hope that made sense, Jill. It's a bit of a parliamentary <laughs> lesson, but that's the, 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 the some knuckle, you know, knuckle ground politics. Um, uh, you know, carried itself out on Parliament Hill this week. Uh, yeah, it's just watching how this is unfolding. So we're hearing then from the Liberals that they aren't ready or the response being to getting things back to some form of normal. Any idea what needs to happen or when they might say, yeah, we can call the House back and, and, and do it in a safe, distanced way? Each party has their own particular wrinkle on this, but I think the key sticking point right now is finding a safe, secure way for MPs to vote remotely. So the issues are, do I know it's the MP and not his assistant or her assistant who's actually voting in a remote sort of situation? The Speaker of the House of Commons, he's a Liberal, his name's Anthony Rota, he's from uh, Northern Ontario. Uh, Speaker Rota, uh, he's had some systems presented to him and he is comfortable with some of these remote voting options. And so the, the idea would be the House of Commons would meet and you'd have, say, 50 or 60 MPs from all parties there in person. Remember, we've got 338 MPs. So, you know, get 50 of them in the House and everybody else is coming in remotely. Um, so the, the sticking point, as I say, really seems to be uh, confidence that remote voting can be done securely. The Conservatives are a little more suspicious that it can be done remotely. They would still see, like to see in-person voting. Um, and they look at the UK, for example. The UK was doing things they called the conga line. So all MPs line up as if you're going to Costco, you know, six feet apart outside the store. All MPs would line up outside the House of Commons six feet apart and file in one at a time cast a vote on whatever the issue of the day is, and that way everybody is accountable for the vote and everybody would get to vote. So there's a lot of assistance being put forward, but that's really what it comes down to. Can we can we find a way to vote in a time of pandemic? Um, there's broad agreement there is a way out there. There's just a not yet broad agreement on which way to, a, which uh, method to adopt. And David, you mentioned the fiscal update and the block asking for that. It mm -hmm. seems like there's a big reluctance to provide one. I don't understand this. So every week I get uh, new forecasts from Bay Street forecasters, the Conference Board of Canada, you name it. Uh, economists, that's what they do. They, they take the latest numbers, they crunch them, they say, here's where we're likely to go. It's a forecast. It's not, you know, not certainly we're going to be there. But for some reason, the Trudeau government, Finance Minister Bill Morneau says that, that their excuse for not presenting a budget, let alone a fiscal and economic update, is they can't forecast where they're going to be. But we've had other situations, and I'll go back to the Harper government in 08-09, where you know, normally the fiscal and economic update comes once a year in the fall, and maybe you got to do another one every quarter because of a rapidly changing uh, financial situation. I don't see the harm in that, and the bloc doesn't either. So uh, the bloc and I think all the opposition parties are saying, you've got to put some numbers down. So the bloc is saying, let's see some numbers by July the 1st, otherwise the bloc uh, is not going to give what the, the Liberals want in terms of fast-tracking legislation. All right. Uh, lots happening, well, or not, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. David, thanks so much for breaking it down for us. Appreciate it. Oh, no problem, Jill. Have a great morning. Okay, you too. That is David Aiken. He is the Global News Chief Political Correspondent in Ottawa. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, some welcome news for the restaurant industry in this province. As yesterday, Dr. Bonnie Henry unveiled some less restrictive guidelines when it comes to reopening and just how many people restaurants can have in their facilities. So let's bring in Mark Van Schelwitz, Von Schelwitz with Restaurants Canada to react to this. Mark, thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning. Uh, my pleasure, Phil. What do you think of the, the restrictions or the loosening or the, the relaxing of the restrictions? 
Uh, certainly, it's uh, welcome news. Uh, the 50% capacity is always something that we thought was overly prescriptive and not necessary. So we really appreciate Bonnie Henry uh, providing the industry with a little bit more flexibility, and it'll certainly help uh, some members with increased patio capacity, for example. Uh, others, though, just won't have enough floor space or right configuration to get more than 50% anyways. But uh, that's certainly helpful, plus some of the other uh, direction that came out uh, is, is helpful as well with the self-serve stations and, and uh, larger groups that you can now serve. The one concern that we do have, though, is on the 1.2-meter uh, physical barriers. We've got a lot of restaurants that have already uh, invested thousands of dollars in purchasing and installing plexiglass, and we're hoping that they'll provide some sort of flexibility where that those plexiglass barriers that are already installed may not be exactly 1.2 meters. So, uh, so that's a concern, but uh, overall, it's, it's very positive. What do you think will look different then for people going to restaurants under these new rules? Well, I think already you can see that, uh, you know, we've got these safety plans in place. We've got uh, very comprehensive physical distancing, sanitation, and personal hygiene protocols that are in place. So, you know, our industry's always been regulated in health and safety, and uh, obviously we want to make sure that we protect our staff and, and our guests as much as possible and that they have a, a very positive, uh, safe, uh, reliable, enjoyable dining experience when they're getting out. And so far, I think... Uh, but they are coming back uh, to our businesses, and and that's obviously really important for all the communities where restaurants are an integral part of that. Uh, and even yesterday, I, I went to a restaurant. It was great to get back and do that. Uh, across the street, there was a lineup of people getting into another restaurant. Uh, are we seeing that confidence, do you think, or are restaurants reporting that, yes, people are coming back? Yes, certainly what we've been hearing is that people are coming back. Uh, however, you know, with the with the restrictions in place, we're certainly nowhere near what our pre-COVID revenues would be. And in fact, we just uh, got the results back from our survey. And what our members are telling us is, uh, while they appreciate being reopened right now, uh, you know, having little to no income for a couple of months and accumulated debt and, and the significant restart uh, costs as well, that it's going to be a long road to recovery. And uh, with 60% of our restaurants that are reopened still losing money, uh, you know, we're going to continue to need ongoing government support to, uh, to make this viable while these restrictions are in place. And when you talk about the, the 1.2 meter rule, so that's, is that, that's a new rule then, is it with the plexiglass barriers, like you said, that many restaurants have put in place? Because it seems like the smaller restaurants, especially, that would be almost impossible. Yeah, well, I don't, you know, I think, I think the real issue here is sort of, uh, you know, we were operating in good faith on the WorkSafe guidelines on plexiglass, which didn't indicate 1.2 meters. And I think it would be unfair for, for all of a sudden somebody to come in with a tape measure. You know, you've spent thousands of dollars on this plexiglass and say it's, it's one meter, not 1.2 meters, that suddenly you have to take away all that glass and uh, flexiglass and replace it. Uh, you know, it's already expensive enough to restart a restaurant. And uh, rather than having to start over again, we're certainly hoping that there's some flexibility uh, on the flexiglass or, or at least grandfather those that have already in good faith uh, put the, uh, the flexiglass in. And you mentioned the survey that your group has done as well. Do you have any idea on the number of restaurants that perhaps or a percentage that we won't see come back? Yeah, I mean, that's always a difficult uh, one to say, but based on previous surveys, you know, we know for a fact that uh, already in March that uh, 10% of our members said that they were going to be permanently closed with another 18% saying they wouldn't likely survive the the next month. So I think uh, uh, roughly a rough guess would be that uh, probably a third of uh, 
Uh, BC's 15,000 restaurants are probably not going to reopen uh, while these restrictions are in place because it's just not economically viable for them to do so. And, and in many cases, they don't have the working capital to come up with uh, the restart costs. With And a restaurant is really different than a retail. You have to purchase inventory, plus now you have the new social distancing protocols that you have to put in place. Uh, so, so it's an expensive proposition, and uh, we're certainly going to need ongoing support from all levels of government to, to ensure that the restaurant industry is viable. And of course, it's important for the government as well that we remain viable because, you know, there's thousands of jobs. We're the third largest employer in the province. So every restaurant that reopens brings back jobs. Everyone that closes, uh, you know, there's no jobs to come back to. And when a local restaurant dies, part of the community, it soon dies as well. So we want to encourage as many people uh, to get out to the restaurants to make sure that they're viable. And uh, hopefully we can get through this with, uh, with some additional government support. All right. We will leave it there, Mark. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. That is Mark Von Schellwitz with Restaurants Canada. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.